1: Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years and I just happen to be married to one. And my co-host today is
2: Sharon Pierce.
1: And Sharon is a practicing CRNA for 20 plus years. We have got
2: to change this intro. I love the plus. I
1: love it. And a past president of the ANA, the North Carolina Association of Nurse Anesthetists, and she's held many leadership roles. And in fact, most of our listenership have heard of Sharon or know who Sharon is. So our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs across the country. And I think we really have a great show for you today. Today we're going to be talking about the nurse anesthesiologist descriptor. And to help us with that, we have got a couple of guests, one being Joe Rodriguez. And Joe is the managing partner for Arizona Anesthesia Solutions, a CRNA-owned group that they cover offices, ASCs, and hospitals throughout Arizona. And he's also a former president of the Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthetists
2: okay and we also have carol Deutscher with us today carol has practiced anesthesia in south dakota and in her home state of minnesota for nearly 35 years carol i can't believe you put that in the bio she's an owner of (laughs) valley professional anesthesia a crna private practice group Throughout her career she has taught student nurse anesthetists both in the didactic as well in the cl- as the clinical arena. She's a past president of the South Dakota Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Wait, I'm supposed to say South Dakota, <laughs> right? Um, and got it <laughs> she's served as chair of several aana committees and currently she serves as minnesota's state reimbursement specialist now on a private point carol and i have known each other for many many years and i'm going to tell you jeremy how i met
1: carol the very
2: first time
1: does this involve wine no okay. it does not right.
2: carol's not a drinker
1: uh, i meant your part <laughs>
2: yeah i'm well, not talking no, about carol no, no i had small children at the time i wasn't drinking then i only had to wait until they got wow, older I have
1: small children that i drink doubles. So yeah well know. there
2: you have it but i had just uh, north carolina had won the pr award for the best kept secret in healthcare, which was a video that we produced and that was back before everybody had a cell phone and could make a video right so we won the award mm-hmm. and they are showing it on a loop in our exhibit hall at our national meeting and it was like i said 1998 and we were in tennessee and i'm standing there in this tall blonde walks up beside of me and just starts talking with me, and she looks at me, and she says, what is your name again? Because you're going to be president of the AANA one day.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> so That is true. Uh,
2: wow. Carol, Carol is a, a prophet.
1: Ah, premonition. So we're going to have a <laughs> sidebar after this, Carol, Absolutely. you and I.
2: See so. what your future holds.
1: <laughs> well, as we always tell our listeners, Sharon, it's time to wake up. So Joe, you know, you have been a leader in our topic today. I know that, uh, you know, I see you on Facebook and a lot of the things that you're doing on this descriptor debate, as we're going to call it. So I'm going to ask you to kick us off and maybe tell us a little bit about why you think this topic is so important and why now?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. This is uh, a topic that even when I first heard the term I actually told the person, I think that's a misnomer. I remember pretty specifically. And then as I got to do some research and began to learn more about it and think critically about it, I eventually was won over and then obviously became a kind of an outspoken supporter. That's been my experience, but the term nurse anesthesiologist is actually relatively old. The last attempt to change the association name was about 30 years ago by a guy named Timothy Wolfe, and he... My understanding he tried to change it in one fell swoop, you know, it was just one bylaw amendment, and obviously the nature of communication has changed since that time. So what I think what you're seeing now and why this time is working better is essentially, you know, recognition, proper recognition, is a basic human need. And CRNAs on the whole suffer from a lack of recognition. All the time. That's why you see members constantly clamoring for better public relations and everyone, I think, most CRNAs have had some sort of experience where you try to explain what we do and it turns into a 10 or 15 minute conversation. It's just not very quick. It's not well understood. And that's why I think this has struck a nerve with so many people. So I don't want to take up a lot of time in this kind of little introductory statement, but for a number of different reasons, you see physicians, physicians. Or anesthesiologists, physician anesthesiologists changing the way they're stylized, the way they're described as physician anesthesiologists. Dentist anesthesiologists are likely about to be recognized within their own body. Other anesthesia, independent anesthesia professionals around the world are moving away from anesthetist and towards anesthesiologists. And that probably is a good segue into something that really strikes a nerve to a lot of people, which is this anesthesiologist assistant issue which i'm sure we'll dive into in more detail but long story short uh, they're using the term anesthetists. there's no real great legal argument against that so you see all these different things going on and you know it it seems that the audience our members and the association are very much about the change and uh, jeremy the one thing i'll take not really issue but i'll just add that even though i've been kind of an outspoken leader on this i will say there's a lot of people who have been involved there's kind of a loose conglomeration of former state presidents and former national presidents, educators, et cetera, who have really worked to make this happen. And so I'm really, I mean, it sounds cliche, I'm just part of the team, but I really am just part of the team. And in fact, this latest effort wasn't even my idea. So that's kind of the idea of the whole issue in a nutshell.
2: So, Carol, why don't you give us your side as far as this whole descriptor debate goes? I know you and I have had long discussions over the years. So why do you think we need to retain the term certified registered nurse anesthetist?
4: Well, here's how I think. As we've talked about this, as you know, in the past, I have been plagued for years by CRNA. I think it's too long. I don't like, as you have heard CRNA say, a CERNA. Patients have said, what's a CERNA, a CRNA? So what I love about what Joe and several of the members of our organization have done is they are innovating. They're visionary. They certainly are looking through clairvoyant glasses, which I appreciate because I myself have never been comfortable with our nomenclature of CRNA. And because of that, and in 35 years of practice, there's been various times when I've worked to create what Joe and the group have created, which is a grassroots swelling um, of our own membership relative to how do we describe ourselves, how do we title ourselves, how do we message and brand ourselves going forward into the brave new world of healthcare business. And as a patient, I often am sitting in waiting rooms with other patients, as well as being fortunate enough to be a provider of anesthesia. And so I've taken it upon myself to ask patients, you know, do you know the difference between a optometrist and an ophthalmologist, a psychologist and a psychiatrist? How about an anesthetist and an anesthesiologist? And in the course of many, many years, I would hear variable answers. But what I liked about what I always heard is what's the difference it at least prompted patients to think, to ask questions, just like payors or policymakers, all the groups that we have a shareholder, stakeholder interest in. And so I embarked upon a study of my own several years ago because I teach leadership and management theory. And when you teach and you wanna know things, you can make your students do your projects. (laughs) So I had students embark upon a project and they asked patients. And we set up two different hypotheses. Hi, I'm Carol Deutscher. I'm your nurse anesthetist. I'll be giving you your anesthesia today, be with you from start to finish, and wake you up, take you to recovery room. Have you met the anesthesiologist yet? Yes. So, and they never any questions, not a single question from a patient. Our other hypothesis was posed as, hi, My name's Carol Deutscher. I'm your anesthetist. I'll be doing your anesthesia today. Same scenario. Every single patient, with the exception of one said, well, then what's the difference? So again, what I liked about it is it prompted patients to think. I happen to have a background in journalism and linguistics as well. And one of the things I'm concerned about related to nurse anesthesiologists is just like nurse anesthetists, patients are going to hear nurse first, and we're going to be helping the doctor do something. And that's what our study showed is that the nurse was always helping the doctor. Unless we said anesthetist, we didn't do anything in our own right. And when I introduce myself to patients, and as you know, over all the years, CRNAs have introduced themselves as several different things, but most often nurse anesthetist or CRNA. Personally, I'm probably one of few who said, hi, I'm your anesthetist. I have a critical care nursing background. And almost every patient says to me, you mean I get an anesthetist and a critical care nurse, and I say yes. And I love what it does to our messaging to patients. I work in a same-day setting, so we need to move, and I don't have a lot of time to talk. So I accomplish that when I do my pre-op. The other thing I've learned to do is I always, almost always without exception, go to the recovery room afterwards to talk to the patient's family who has not been sedated, who is not on drugs, and understands what I'm talking about. Maybe not come to the south.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They just don't have any. There
4: there might be a difference. But anyway, (laughs) I don't want to take up too much time, but that's kind of where I'm at. I love that somebody's thinking about changing it. I'm not sure that I support the nurse anesthesiologist simply because of where I've come from in my own studies.
1: Well, Joe, you've kind of heard Carol's take here. And, you know, the first question that arises in my mind is, does anesthesiologist equal doctor or physician? Is that is that what that means?
3: You know, I want to answer that. There's one thing I noticed, because Sharon, you asked why we should retain certified registered nurse anesthetist. And it seemed like Carol was answering a different question, because Carol, from what I was gathering, was essentially that you're essentially advocating for the term anesthetist only. Is that I want to make sure I understand. Is that what you're advocating for, Carol?
4: Yes. Like I said, I've been plagued by CRNA as well, and I don't think we should retain CRNA as our messaging, as our branding. I'm comfortable retaining it at the licensure nomenclature level. Okay.
3: Yeah. I guess in thinking through that, I think whether it's You know, I just you can't get away from our nurse. What I'm thinking as I'm hearing that is I don't want to say impossible, but it's virtually impossible to get away from the nursing background, license, structure, regulatory framework. And if we went down that direction, we probably hear a lot of what I heard, especially in the initial part of this movement, so to speak, which is, well, I'm really proud to be a nurse. I'm really proud to be an advanced practice nurse. Why are we hiding who we are? Not to mention the fact that the only real protection of a term is, is our licensed profession, which is nurse. And that would probably be the main, as I'm thinking through that, would be the probably the main issue. But the, the other thing that really stuck out as I was listening, you said, what's the difference? And I mean, I, I think we have an identical viewpoint as far as what the difference is as far as anesthesia, which is nothing, right? For me, it's like you mentioned your journalism background, right? And I, I can relate that in a very amateur way. But I like communication, right? And if, if you're going to say it's the same, if you're going to say when a physician does the anesthesia and the CRNA does the anesthesia, but then you're going to use different words to say the same thing, why would you do that? Why not use the same word? Because really the only difference is one has a medical background and one has an, an advanced practice nursing background or a critical care background.
1: So, Joe, to that point, I mean, if yeah. Carol thinks that, you know, and I'm not going to put words in her mouth because I'm definitely not the educated one on this, but if she thinks anesthetist would be fine to use without nurse and whether that could happen or not. But I guess I go back to my question before, and that was what I was kind of trying to lead into mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. you know, could you say as well anesthesiologist? Does, does the term anesthesiologist represent doctor or physician is that- right. And that's a
3: yeah, it's a good segue. Right. Because then, kind of digging into what these words really mean. And the answer is no. And we don't. I'm not sure that the power of the studies that Carol was performing. But fortunately, you know, this, this organization, which has antagonized us for like the last hundred years, they were trying to do themselves a favor, but they actually did us a giant favor, I think. And they paid, you know, millions of dollars. I forget the actual term or the actual amount but a number of different PR firms to investigate whether the general public in the United States of America believes that the term anesthesiologist means physician and six out of 10 of them did not. So the majority. Correct. And now of course, right. And they they came back with their physician anesthesiologist thing, which again, from a language standpoint, if they were trying to convince anyone that was probably not the right way to go. But when you have physician anesthesiologists, it only then infers that there are other types of anesthesiologists and of course, there are, you know, there are dentist anesthesiologists, there's even a veterinary anesthesiology society. Okay. And of course, now I think uh, in the future here, we'll, we'll have nurse anesthesiologists as well. So yeah, great question. And, so, so but yeah, I, I think that's the, uh, I don't think you can get away from the, if we're doing the same thing, why are we using different words?
1: So, Joe, this really isn't meant as a a provocation to physician anesthesiologist. I mean, I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's really a different subject matter, and maybe we could talk about that. The reason that there's a difference between the term anesthesiologist and anesthetist, and what kind of brought this all about for you. Was there any specific moment or something that might have happened or, or maybe the ASA, you know, when they came out with their position statement, you know, what kind of brought this about for you?
3: Yeah, sure. It was uh, probably two specific moments. One I alluded to earlier where I said, you know, to that person, it was Karen Karp, actually from California. and She said it to me and I was like, eh. So that was one where it really she really encouraged me to think through it. Then I was speaking with my brother, who's a superintendent. And again, I'll keep this answer brief, but long story short, you know, he's someone who's very familiar with all the different career paths students take. Right. And, uh, I've been explaining to him what we do for, it seems like many years and I could tell it never quite fit, uh, into his dichotomy, which Carol mentioned, which is like either physician, you know, either doctor or nurse, either, you know, the guy who's in charge of the helper. And finally, I just said, you know, I'm explaining it. And I just said, Steve, we're just another type of anesthesiologist. It's the exact same thing. We're just a different type. We're still an anesthesiologist. And he goes, oh, well, you probably should have started saying that. You should have, probably should have started out describing it that way. It would have been a lot easier. And that's when it hit me where someone with, you know, I'm an educated person, you know, if if he's having a hard time making sense of it in his head, then maybe we need to change the way we're describing it. And from an advocacy level, I'm thinking to myself, having been involved in those types of things, it's like, if I don't win them over in the first 15 seconds, then, you know, I'm already starting out from behind. And if I'm having that experience, you you multiply that by, I don't know, the 10,000 or so CRNAs who are involved in leadership in some form, that's a serious problem. And I think it's a relatively simple fix, which is you use words where people understand the meaning. I think we've we've really, uh, and Carol may not like me after this point, but um, I promise it's not personal, Carol. We've really harped on to this anesthesia thing because it's ours and we're holding on to it. And if that's our word and I'll just as their word, I think we're going to. You know, communication is about making sure your audience understands. It's not about how we feel that's important. It's about how does our audience feel and are they really understanding what we're saying? Do they really know that we're advanced practice nurses? We're also experts in one specific field. And I would say the answer is no, because we've been trying to do it for the last 80 years or so. So we've, we've got to do something different. I think we've got to do something fundamental. And I, I think that's why this change is so important.
2: Carol, if you'd like to jump in on this, but I know that overseas, there are not anesthesiologists. And I believe you had an interaction with a British anesthetist.
4: Yes, that's correct. I have relatives in Belgium who are also anesthesia providers. And as you know, and Joe mentioned this, they have historically always referred to themselves as anesthetists or anesthetists. And one of the reasons I thought it was, again, an important consideration, at least as we have our spirited debate, and as you know, my famous line is spirited debate does not preclude consensus. That's but right. anesthetists is already part of our name, part of our licensure. But even more importantly, what I like best about it is it causes people to think, to ask questions. It causes payers to think, to say, what's the difference? I'm not sure what the right answer is going forward relative to what gets traction in the marketplace, what sort of tangible, measurable, you know, message we communicate. But I think the debate is worth it. And I think that, you know, we have to consider what assumptions, what conclusions, what pre-conclusions. You know, historically, what we found is we are misrepresented as providers, period. We lack recognition. And the biggest reason is we're underrepresented. You know, we haven't historically been at the table to have discussions that matter. When it comes relative to our messaging and our branding, when it comes to nurse anesthesiologists, my biggest concern, as I've shared with Joe and several others, is I've queried several of my anesthesiology friends and colleagues. And I think over 80% of us work with anesthesiologists. That's a large percentage of our membership. And they say it's poking the bear. They don't like it. They consider it inflammatory. Now we have never been afraid of being inflammatory, but I think the time has come, especially relative to, you know, what we do from, you know, I think Lorraine embarked on a study several over the course of many years with the workforce study and looking at, you know, supply and demand equilibrium. You know, where do we go and how do we be recognized? And my whole thing is with a reimbursement emphasis is if we really want to be paid by payors, because if you heard me say during the day, it's about relationships and service. And at the end of the day, it is always about the money. So how do we work together? How do we create a milieu where we know there's enough work for both of us, but what can we do to create something economically sustainable where A lot of anesthesiologists understand that CRNAs are a value proposition. We're the best bang for the buck. And how do we create a staffing model that makes sense for the future of anesthesia delivery in this country? Mm. We have to really consider inflammatory responses. I'm not a fan of that. I'm a fan of looking and creating something more collaborative because we have a lot more in common. And 80-some percent of our membership works with anesthesiologists. So as we look I, at as we look at traction quotients, as we look at all of those things, I think we have to really consider what is the best way to go forward relative to our messaging and our communication, our recognition, and our accountability to the American patient.
3: Can I jump in there? Sure. Go ahead. So I just want to make sure I'm hearing you. That I heard your suggestion correctly. You're suggesting that we collaborate with physicians on this topic?
4: No, I'm suggesting that we collaborate with physicians when it comes to other areas of interest, such as reimbursement. And when sure. you expect to collaborate, you can't be inflammatory.
3: So let me. I've done some negotiating um, in my time with building the business up and whatnot. So I want to respond to that. The first thing is I don't think we can... We don't operate in a vacuum, of course. But I think if there's something, if we're experts, I think we need to act like experts. And if someone else gets upset about that, obviously the intent is not to make them upset. And that's where that area of collaboration and understanding can come in. But to say that we should not do something which can move us forward, which is what I would say is communicating in an accurate way with our uh, various audiences, stakeholders, etc. To say that we should not do that for the sake of collaborating, we have to look at the whole context, right? The American Society of Anesthesiologists for over 30 years has gone on the record over and over and over that we are second class, that we are second rate, that we always should be supervised by a physician. They always negotiate <laughs> from a, a place of strength. And I don't begrudge them for that. They're trying to maximize position in the market and there's nothing immoral necessarily about that but what i would say is if we're going to talk about inflammatory things how on god's green earth <laughs> is authorizing a marketing campaign that says meet your new anesthetists from the american academy of anesthesiologists assistance"? how is that not inflammatory and i'm not saying because they're inflammatory we should respond in kind don't misunderstand me but I am saying that should not be our primary concern. And while a lot of us, you know, these national politics, these, you know, you look in Parade Magazine from 30 years ago when we got profiled in there, it's the exact same argument. So a lot of these national politics things are going to continue to go on and people are still going to have normal working relationships. But I don't think you start a good negotiation from a position of weakness. And I've, and I've had those negotiations with payers Well, they'll say, hey, they're an anesthesiologist, They're an expert, you're not, that's why you're gonna take 40% less, even though we deliver the exact same service. And again, it gets down to very fundamental things. I say it's the exact same thing, but I am currently essentially forced to use different words to say the exact same thing. So if I can say, if we can authorize all of our members to say, yes, I am a nurse, but I provide an anesthesiology service, that makes a lot more sense, I think, in a lot more people's minds. So I'm very sensitive, and I have friends who are physicians. I'm even in some business propositions with physician anesthesiologists. And I I take nothing that I'm doing as a criticism of anything that they do, and I actually believe they provide a lot of value in the marketplace on the whole. But with that said, I don't, you know, how we define ourselves, that can only be answered by us. And um, I think that's how we lose a lot of negotiations.
4: Right, and I'm not against the term nurse anesthesiologist as much as I am for further debate on the topic. I, I think our membership needs to consider what the law of unintended consequences has showed us often in the past, whether it's TEFRA with Medicare or what have you. But I think that often we don't consider enough. We create a momentum and then we wonder why we get what we ask for. And so I think it warrants further debate. That's my biggest concern. Is how do we create, you know, more of a um, environment where CRNAs, you know, we've called ourselves that forever and ever, and now all of a sudden we're nurse anesthesiologists without a lot of discussion relative to somebody playing the devil's advocate or somebody suggesting some other nomenclature or some other descriptor. I think it's really important before you go forward with something of this magnitude to consider, you know, a really I think meaningful debate with leaders of the organization past and present
3: well i think to be fair i think we've been having this conversation since late 2017 you know with very respected individuals sandy roulette janice islar and a staff who's chris betton people who are very well respected and with good reason for certain and i think we've been having this debate in the community for a long time as far as you know Kind of going forward with due diligence etc the only thing i would ask and ask listeners is to say if someone can tell me one independent independent profession in the specialty of anesthesia throughout the world that is not using or heading towards using the word anesthesiologist i'd be more than open to hear it i mean maybe we could just go down the list you know ireland just changed there's discussions in basically every uk country the European Society of Anesthesia is not anesthesia. It's the European Society of Anesthesiology. And you know, all the professions that we've already mentioned here, there's just, I don't, there's just not a strong argument, I don't think, to endlessly study. But you, you make a good point, that's for sure. But I just haven't heard a good counter yet as that's far true. as let's consider something else. Something else doesn't
1: jump out on me. Uh, hey, well, just, I think
4: uh, the one thing we talk about a lot is the science versus the educational difference. And we all know that the science is the same. And anesthesiology, the term in and of itself, implies science, right? The study of anesthesia, the science of anesthesia. So we have, in this country, three providers. And of course, we all are held to the same standard of care. We all study the same science. But the method by which we get to the terminal degree Very. So I think that's why it's important that we consider what is the best way to message. And it may be nurse anesthesiologists. I'm not dead set against that. I just think that we haven't taken other considerations into cause like we could or should.
1: Hey, Joe, I'm going to interject real quick. You know, as we're talking about this, you mentioned Sandy Ouellette, and Sandy was in earlier, and, you know, this topic somewhat got touched on. And, you know, we were talking mm-hmm. about some of the history of nurse anesthesia, and, you know, she kind of alluded to what's going on now with the anesthesiologist descriptor. And she said, we got to be careful. And, you know, when you, as Carol put it, I think she said, poke the bear. Um, mm-hmm. You know, have you have you guys, as you've kind of gone through this, thought about you know what the economical ramifications of this could possibly be? or you know some of the things that Sandy and Dickulet who were in here talked about things that happened before with the ASA and anesthesiologists of being able to close down clinical sites where you know SRNAs couldn't practice and couldn't and do things mm. like that I mean are there are there other considerations to Carol's point that maybe we should be looking at I mean is there anything that you see that you know kind of is a ramification of this
3: Yeah yeah absolutely. those are very smart things to talk about and be discussed i think there's maybe two angles on those the first is a lot of those things have been brought up by folks who have been overtly against the idea right so that that doesn't create dialogue i think carol and i even though we're going at it in a spirited way so to speak want or you know this is about dialogue more than necessarily one side winning or the other Right. So I think in the first year or so, a lot of that, that was the context. Well, this is a bad idea. So it was obviously against the idea and for all these reasons. So it became a me versus you dynamic. But now that the idea has continued to gain momentum, I would say very clearly that we have to consider those things. We have to do our due diligence. So on those, on a couple of those topics, just the kind of the general thought process, um, as far as other considerations, some of the people have said, well, why don't we just spend a lot of money on public relations, kind of double down on the, the CRNA brand as it is now. And the last I had been told by an a a president was that that would cost somewhere in the range of about $20 million. I don't know the annual budget of the A N A off the top of my head. I think it's around $30 million. So obviously spending two-thirds of your budget on one particular action is not feasible. And you're right? not
1: guaranteed to win, right? yeah exactly. where's, the, where's the payoff
3: <laughs> yeah so some others have said well we need to study this more we should authorize a task force or something like that and uh, you know there was a task force last year i was on it and the board at the time specifically said there will be no you know large pr study and i think those were, l- were in large um, like inquiry into whether this works or not and i think i don't know I think the money was a primary thing there because it's costly to do extensive studies. Um, And then, you know, the one I'm sensitive to, especially, is the lost clinical sites, right? Because, you know, educators on the whole are the lowest paid people in our profession. You know, it's a very different line of work, of course, when you're educating primarily. But I think that job is a lot harder than most people realize. My mom was a collegiate educator, so I'm, I'm sensitive to it. You know, and what I would say is... You know, we have to balance out the needs of advocacy with the needs of education, right? So every time over the past three and four decades that we've kind of had a lurch forward, you know, when we required a doctorate, when we said, hey, we're doing, we are doing expert level work. That was the conversation at the time. We need a doctorate is what really matches. And it matched up on a bunch of different levels with uh, other recommendations from other bodies. It was the same thing, right? You know, docs are going to be really upset. We're going to lose clinical sites, When we started to require epidurals and spinals, it was the same thing. It was the same kind of rallying and cry, we're gonna lose all these sites. And actually when you look at the evidence, when you look at what's happening, is not only have schools not contracted, they've continued to expand. We have more programs now almost than ever before. I think they may have peaked a year or two ago the last time I looked at the numbers. So, you know, I'm I'm sensitive to these things. I'm, I'm certainly open to a way, and I don't speak for everyone, obviously, but myself, I would be open to a way to give away a plausible deniability. And I think that's always smart because obviously, even though my interests, you know, my interests as an ANA member align well with the educator ANA member, obviously we have to message that differently. So I'm in my position, I'm much easier to take the brunt of criticism and vitriol from our opposition in the marketplace where they are not, and I'm sensitive to that. So, And that's part of the reason I'm in the position I'm in. So I, th- I think it has to be examined from a point of view where, hey, it's not if, but how. You know, How do we get this done in an effective way that maximizes our ability to communicate to patients, surgeons, administrators, regulators, but at the same time minimizes the blowback for our, you know, specifically in this case, our educator community. And that's really the same equation we have to figure out Every single time we do anything that's assertive, whether it's removing supervision or, you know, whatever advocacy thing that's on a state's agenda, so that, that's kind of my where I look at that.
2: Carol, you'll you'll want to take this question too. You know, Carol alluded to this. What about unintended consequences? What could could that be are there any licensure unintended consequences you know as a leader of this association we made decisions for instance that now may have been reversed I'll give you an example we listened to the members we changed our annual meeting To September it had traditionally been in August we moved it to September people complained Mm -hmm. and so guess what now it's gone back to August because we found all of these unintended consequences kids had gone back to school people had been Mm -hmm. using the meeting time as their vacation it conflicted with when the anesthesia school and these were all things we thought we were doing what the members wanted and guess what we didn't look at all of the extrinsic factors so you know as a prior leader of this association and i'm sure this is what the board of directors are thinking so let's talk about what the unintended consequences could potentially be so carol i'll let you take this question i know you've got a lot of grc knowledge a lot of state regulatory knowledge and so it'd be interesting to see what your take on this situation could be
4: Well, I appreciate that, Sharon. And Jeremy asked a very good question. I want to address that quickly first. And then, Sharon, you've worked as a lobbyist, so certainly have an unusual expertise relative to the far majority of CRNAs. But, Jeremy, you know, you asked about educators, and obviously that's where we, you know, the power of our students is very significant and what's happened to those numbers. And when I was in the business in the mid-80s and started school, we had 147 or somewhere between 145 and 149 schools. Our low point was 88. I know that the school that I teach at, we still have trouble getting clinical sites, and I believe now aren't we up to 120-some programs? Yes. Yes. So, we've recovered fairly substantially from where I was and where we went to. Um, but, you know, we still need to work at that. But to answer your question, Sharon, I think the big question becomes for payers and policymakers. When and how do descriptors become a brand, a title, a message to consumers? Not only consumers, but policymakers, regulators, and payers. And so, that's my concern when you look at the law of unintended consequences, it's not just about our membership. It's about all the stakeholders and who are those people? You know, as a patient often, sitting in a waiting room myself with a liver mass, I listen and I ask a lot of questions. So it's about the consumer, it's about our membership, it's about policymakers and regulators, as well as payors. And we've done a lot of work in the state of Minnesota to ask payers, you know, how do you see this? What do you think? And it's an interesting discussion. And so I think, you know, the question remains, the biggest law of unintended consequences is we can't become myopic. We have to think about a bigger audience, not just our audience and our membership. And the reason is things like this are truly transformational. They're huge. I mean, you know, we have enjoyed what we've enjoyed since 1931, and there's been a few transitions in the course of that time. But as Sandra said earlier, we're close to our 100th celebration, our 100th year celebration. So as we transform ourselves in some way, shape, or form, what does that look like? You know, not just for the future mm-hmm. of our profession, but for the greater anesthesia community as well as all the players in the field.
1: Yeah, Joe, have you thought about you know, some of these unintended consequences or even you know maybe the, the consequences of a lawsuit potentially by sure. ASA?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Really good question. Um, yeah, a couple things come to mind. You know, maybe I should start with Sharon's example. Sharon's example, the August and September thing. I think, you know, we can ask the question. Well, maybe we we can make the statement. We shouldn't have gone in September, right? But then you can also ask the question. Well, what would have happened if you didn't listen to the members in that moment? And depends who who those members were and how many of them they were. Maybe going to September for a few years was actually still the best thing to do, even though it still went back to August, because maybe if you hadn't listened to the members in that moment, the consequences would have been greater and they would have resigned their membership and, you know, just been, you know, anti national association, et cetera. So the reason I start there is because I think at some point you can ask endless questions about something. You can study it endlessly. And I think our experience as clinicians and academics and even business people to some degree, the natural question now is, well, what's the evidence, right? And that's a good question to ask, but just like Carol said, we have to look at the global picture. And again, keep it very, very simple. There are only a few independent professionals who provide anesthesia. We're one of the few who are not using or heading towards using anesthesiologists. But to the point of unintended consequences specifically in this subject, I think, you know, there's definitely going to be things that we have to figure out along the way. But let me start at a really basic level. If somebody sues us over this, and I think based on multiple conversations, legal counsel, including a legal counsel, we're in a very strong position on this. In fact, I would say we're on a stronger position on this issue, especially at a state advocacy level, maybe then, you know, things like anesthesiologist assistance. I think our arguments are better, so to speak. But let's say we get sued, right? And let's say we spend a lot of money. At that point, that lawsuit becomes not just about titles or descriptors or what we're calling ourselves. It becomes about the central idea that we've been talking about for the last 100 years, right? Which is, if we are nurses, are we truly anesthesia experts? Are we doing the same thing that our physician colleagues do? That's why we want to get rid of supervision. That's why we want to open up potential markets, right? That's why we need parity and reimbursement because we deliver the same service. That's the essential argument, right? And if we get sued over a title, it no longer becomes about a title. It becomes about that most central argument. So there's been some very big court cases, right? You know, Dagmar Nelson, right? It started off relatively small, which, you know, um, I forget the surgeon's name, Bring, brings Dagmar Nelson into California, she says she has a right to provide services. Well, the California Medical Society didn't believe so. They sued, and uh, she won, right? It was a huge, huge result, huge ripple effects throughout our history. And what I, I'm not presuming that this would all happen, right? But what I am saying is she did what she felt was right. She followed her friend, her surgeon. She provided quality service, and she essentially lived with the consequences because she knew she had a right to do it. And that is to some degree what I'm saying. We are experts. We, we've been pounding our fists on the table, saying the same things over and over again. And we're wondering why we're not getting traction it's because we're not using words that people understand. And there's a flip side, right? If we're talking about unintended consequences, we have to explore unintended benefits. A lot of people are worried about getting sued, and a lot of people are worried about what's this gonna do to us at every different level. Well, I've gotta tell you, Jeremy, I. And this is where i get i get very passionate about this because i love our story right our story is one of being underdogs and having to fight to do the right thing I, you know we provide inherent value to just to neighborhoods and communities all across the country we are often the difference between a facility going in the red and closing and services being taken away from a community versus a community being able to take money and reinvest it not only staying open but reinvest it back into the community and expand services and build the economy that's part of the role that we play so we are experts and when we provide those expert services we should be willing to fight for that recognition because it's right because it's proper so to me the unintended benefits are much greater than the unintended consequences and i'm willing to go to the mat every day of the week and twice on sunday to tell people that CRNAs are experts, that our work is not second rate, and we shouldn't use some other word, our work is first rate. It is expert level, and we should use words that denote expertise.
1: Joe, Joe, I love your passion.
3: That's what I think about uh, unintended consequences. Sorry, I get very worked up. I I, I I I hope there's somebody
2: with you that knows CPR, Joe.
1: Joe, I love the passion. (laughs) I I, I, I do. I love the passion. Would love to have you on my team and in any sport. I'll tell you that right now. And and Joe, you've educated me because, you know, you you kind of talked about this debate and and so forth and, and kind of some of the reasonings behind it. Because in my mind, this was just always all about the money. But, you know, maybe it is about something else. I'm not sure.
2: Well, I have one other question or comment I'd like to throw out. You know, the AAs call themselves anesthetists. Did we ever think about suing them? Because we're called anesthetists, number one. So I don't know if a lawsuit would actually come to be from the ASA. It might, it might not. We did, I don't think it's ever been discussed that we sue AAs for calling themselves that. But it almost makes you wonder if the anesthesiologist set that whole thing up and got them to call themselves anesthetists.
4: Mm. Sharon, that's a great question because it becomes, what does title protection mean? And mm. it's a really, it's a fair question. It's a good question. It hasn't been challenged at a lot of levels. You'll often hear a CST, a certified surge check, call themselves a nurse. I know that in our state, if they do that, they are subject to revocation as well as suspension because that is an abomination of title protection. So it's a very good question. And I've asked the same question. You know, because we already have anesthetists in our licensure and title. Anesthesiology assistants do not. So I think it's a fair question. I think it's a question that needs to be investigated and explored, and I don't think it has been up to this point. And I also question, as you do, was there something where anesthesiologists thought that made sense, or should that be recommended or encouraged? But certainly we have to consider not only abomination. What does title protection mean? I can
3: I can take a stab at that. So you raise up a really good question about the, the term anesthetist and if we can sue it. I think the answer is no, which would mean no. And I think
2: that they and, and here's sue why.
3: Us. Yeah, that they cannot use or the answer is no that we would be successful in the lawsuit against them. And it's been I think to some degree it's been tested already. And that testing place was Florida. So the first place that the Meet Your New Anesthetist campaign was rolled out was in the state of Florida. And that's important to note because Florida has not just the term certified registered nurse anesthetist in statute, right? It actually has title protection for both certified registered nurse anesthetists and anesthesiology assistants. So an AA in Florida is required by law to identify themselves as an anesthesiology assistant. So that then raises the question, does it preclude them also from identifying as an anesthetist? And uh, this is third parties to take over a grain of salt. But I spoke with Eric Roush, who was the president of Florida at that time. And they they talked about, it. they talked about suing the Quad A or whatever their local state chapter was. And the legal advice was no. Because, you know, let me give you a scenario. You know, my name is Joe. I'm the anesthesiologist's assistant. I'll be your anesthetist today. Hmm. That is what they are allowed to do because there is no prohibition on them using their title, but then also using as a descriptor I am an anesthetist today because again, let's you know just break it down to the most simple level. What is an anesthetist? When you look at the etymology, when you look at the way that word is constructed. It is someone who delivers anesthesia. And that's it. We are nurse anesthetists and physician anesthesiologists in this country were previously called physician anesthetists. And that's a good segue. I and mean, the whole reason that we have the American Society of Anesthesiologists is because I think it was Dr. Wood. One of the prominent members in the early part of the last century wrote into their society and said, hey, we shouldn't be anesthetists. We're experts. We should be anesthesiologists. And that's how they changed that. Then the Long Island uh, Society of Anesthetists became the New York Society of Anesthesiologists, and so on. So again, I think you stick to the most basic concepts, that kind of Occam's razor type understanding. I, I don't think we have a good case at all to sue them.
4: You know, it's a good question, Sharon, and I I don't think we've asked it enough simply because, as you know, you can go to any state and get a different answer from an AG, an attorney general, or a different group of attorneys, and it depends. You know, there's all kinds of things. FTC and many other groups could get involved in this discussion. It becomes one of those Pandora boxes as to how you want to go or where you want to go with it. One of the arguments that Joe has used that I found credible is people have trouble saying anesthetist. They can say anesthesiologist much easier. So I've always found that interesting when you talk about communicating or messaging, what is the easier thing for patients to say? And a lot of CRNAs can't say anesthetist. So I I always think it's an interesting discussion too, just on You know, what is easiest for us to say? It's kind of like aluminum. People have trouble saying that. They have trouble, for some reason, saying anesthetist or anesthetist. So that's a whole other discussion. But I really believe relative to AAs and that title protection, that's a real issue. CSTs run into it calling themselves nurse or second scrubs or first scrubs or first assistants, and all those things. And what does that mean? I don't think it's been studied enough. We don't know. And certainly if you put it before AGs, you're going to get 50 different opinions, probably from 50 different AGs. So it's a good question. And I don't think one state qualifies as an answer to our question, personally.
3: No, no, it's a good, you're, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. One state doesn't qualify as a definitive answer. What I would say is that we can also look at what the uh, Department of Justice, through their trademark office, has already opined on this issue, or at least an aspect of it. And uh, a member tried to patent the term nurse anesthesiologist. Yes. and the Department of Justice lawyer. Uh, this was, and this was all during my work on the task force that I became familiar with all this. He wrote back to this member and basically said, "You can't patent it because the term anesthesiologist is quote merely descriptive." He basically opined that you know your title is nurse; no one can take that away from you. Uh, and a physician's title, is physician or medical doctor, right? That's not up for debate. But what is up for debate is what you should call yourself afterwards, an anesthesiologist or an anesthetist, et cetera. So I, even with anesthesiologist assistants, I, you know, hey, if somebody from the ANA you know called me and said, "Joe, I really, I really appreciate all your work, but we're going to double down on this lawsuit," um, I'd be really interested to hear it. Number one, and number two, that just hasn't happened i don't think we're in a strong position on it and the other thing you know and carol i think can probably relate to this but from a resources standpoint i'm not so worried about polling the other guy you know my, my overall strategy is not worrying about what the other guys are doing i'd rather just do a really good job ourselves so i'm not sure it's a good use of resources to try to sue the quad a at, at 50 state level or however many state levels rather than just focusing on saying hey we're here. We should be recognized at every level as experts, as full providers of uh, anesthesia care, and just work from that operating principle and live with the, both the consequences and the
4: benefits.
2: I have one more question I want to ask both of you, and this is just from the fact of being a previous leader of our organization and at a time where we had a fairly divisive issue going on within our organization. And this could also prove to be another divisive issue. And I'm just wondering what both of your thoughts are as to the fact, is this where we need to be putting our time and effort on what we call ourselves? Or should we be facing outward and working in other areas that we have to deal with. So, Carol, you're first.
4: Okay, I'll take this one on first. Um, I just want to thank you and Jeremy for some very provocative, good questioning. I love it. It's fun to be engaged in this sort of debate as well as discussion. To answer your question, that's a really good point. You know, where should we be putting our time, energy, and resources relative to what makes the most sense? And I think there are other pressing issues. And, you know, I think the change in the reimbursement models and staffing models are a bigger concern for me personally as a member and as a provider. Because how do we create an environment where we have staffing models that make sense for sustainability, in the healthcare delivery and specifically anesthesia delivery in this country. So, I would argue that it makes a lot more sense to put our time, energy, and money and resources into those areas. Now, the question becomes you know, how do you market yourselves in, in that arena? And, you know, it's a good question. I think that one thing is the ASA came out with their anesthesia care team statement in October of last year. We haven't really launched this position statement yet. So we don't know what the consequences will be from, you know, the other players or stakeholders in the industry. But certainly, I think that is a really good question. And I'm so excited you guys are doing this podcast because you're asking the best questions. And I guess that's why I'd answer that one personally.
3: Joe? I think when we're talking about where we should put our focus, you know, we have to do first things First. And this is a fundamental issue, right? What, the way we talk about ourselves, the way we feel about ourselves, even when we look ourselves in the mirror, and when we look at other people, if we're not communicating in a way that people understand it, none of those practical things, which I agree with Carol, are important, reimbursement, staffing, workforce issues, all of those things are really extensions off of fundamental things, which is who are we and what are the services that we offer? Are we experts or are we not? And if we're experts, we shouldn't be afraid to describe ourselves in that way. And what I would say is when we are experts and we act like experts and we walk into those rooms saying, hey, you know, we are expert-level clinicians, uh, we are a nurse anesthesiologist, and you know, these are the things that we're looking for as part of a negotiation, whether it's, again, communication or reimbursement or staffing or any of the things that various committees are working on, you have to start with the fundamentals, right? So the other thing I would say is that You know, we've been describing ourselves. We've, hey, look, I I remember going to mid-year Assembly and seeing people up there and learning. We're quality. We give access. We give cost-effective care. And we are safe. And I went into those legislators' offices and and preached the good word of, of CRNAs, right? And we've been doing that for a very long time. And yet we find ourselves at a similar place. We don't see, you know, state after state just falling like dominoes. And we've been in the era of healthcare reform, arguably, since the Clinton era, right? And we don't see the progress that we want. We have to do something different. And to me, we always start with the first things first. We start with the fundamentals, right? And, and as a leader, as someone who's helped build a business and, you know, worked through these state issues and been involved in national issues, we can, again, we can ask endless questions and look for endless evidence and be sure we're going to make the right decision just like Sharon you probably were when you're changing the the date of the uh the national conference you make the decision and ends up not being perfect anyway so I think as leaders we have to be bent towards action right we have to look at all the facts that are around us and say how can we affect the most results for our members so they can go out in the communities and do the most good and you know I'll end on One more thing when it comes to why we should focus on this. Why is this worthy of our time? And Carol, you mentioned the the ASA statement, right? And that's been around, I think, since 1976, if memory serves. You know, the ASA is a very powerful, very effective organization. When they're the top healthcare pack in the nation, Uh, they do a lot of things, right? They've done a lot of good for society, frankly, uh, other than their scope of practice issues. I think they're a pretty good organization as far as what they do. But they are perpetuating an ideal where there are two, really, excluding all the global context and other types of providers, but there are essentially two types of providers in this country. There are physicians who are experts, and then there's everybody else. And they are working very hard, very diligently to lump us in the same category as their assistants, a profession which they created. And we would be remiss to underestimate their work. In that. And that is a fundamental thing. All that is is words on, on paper, right? You can say the same thing to them. Why are you focusing on it? it's Just It's just a piece of paper. What really matters is what's out there in the, in the community, in the hospital. Well, they know that that paper that they wrote is going to be referenced by thousands of people across the country. And what I would say to the people listening to this podcast is that in the same way, people are looking to the ANA for leadership on this issue, on what CRNAs do, on what CRNAs are worth. And the value that we provide communities. And yes, this is controversial, but it is fundamental. And that's why it's so important that it occur.
1: Well, I think that's a good note to end on, Joe. And we just want to thank you both. You both were respectful, professional, knowledgeable CRNAs. And this is what CRNAs are about. And you both represent your profession and your colleagues extremely well. And... So I think we're going to wrap it up. We want to thank our uh, listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and
2: Sharon Pierce.
1: If you like our show and want to know more about it, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Until next time.
2: It's a wrap.
0: Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning. An independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 304